It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hi, everybody, and welcome. It's the very first edition of it in the front row. I am Mike Vaccaro, your host. And uh, well, this is a podcast, so we're going to try to introduce you to people in sports. I'm curious. I want to know about their sports journey, and we're going to bring those to you. And, you know, why, why a podcast? There's so many podcasts out there. Again, uh, I'm a broadcaster, uh, the radio voice for UNC Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina, and I just love to meet people in sports and learn about their journey. How do they get there? How do they become the people that they are? So that is what this show is dedicated to. Um, why in the front row? Well, uh, again, as a broadcaster for basketball, I'm in the front row courtside. For a broadcaster for baseball, I'm in the front row of the press box. So it kind of makes sense that uh, I'm in the front row and you're in the front row with me and have a great seat at these interviews that we're going to bring you uh, throughout the year. So for our very first guest, looking around, trying to figure out who, who could that person be? Who could we have on our podcast as a very first guest? And I was able to find somebody who shares certainly my passion for sports and a media person as well. But not only shares a passion for sports, he shares my name. Well, no relation, but it's Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post. He is our very first guest. Enjoy episode one of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Well, Mike, first of all, uh, we appreciate you joining us here on our our very first podcast, uh, In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. And uh, as you can see there, there's two of us here. (laughs) A little resemblance, but but no relation. But uh, again, we we appreciate you spending some time with us here today. Yeah, we're we're, we're definitely fraternal twins, if we're any kind of twins. We're definitely, but but, uh, no, it's a a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, it's been fun to uh, follow your career from a distance. and uh, see that uh, that uh, you're doing proud to the uh, to the moniker. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's uh, two guys that, that love sports. Same name here, and and I would assume right now is a very busy time for you. It is. You know. I mean. It, you know. I, I guess we could wish you would be busier if the teams that we follow here were were, were better. But uh, certainly the Yankees are in the thick of the wild card race, and the Mets. You know, they're in, they're in daily soap opera. So at least they give you something to write about. Uh, unfortunately, the football teams have picked up where they've left off the last couple of years, which is to say they lose every week. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's the, 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 the great thing about New York is that even when the teams lose, there's a lot of interest. In fact, sometimes there's more interest when they lose. And so, uh, yeah, we're right in the middle of that. And, you know, next week, basketball camps open and, uh, you know, the Nets certainly have championship ambitions. And uh, the Knicks had a surprising year last year, which was a whole lot of fun. That was one of the most fun seasons we've had around here in New York city in many years, despite how bad, you know, how disappointingly it ended against the Hawks. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's, 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 it's a great, uh, it's a great treadmill, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. That, that crossover time of year, certainly. Well, uh, again, a long time, uh, sports writer at the New York post, but uh, a long story before that. And, and, and for you, it started at uh, West Hempstead, New York. Uh, what was it like growing up for you? And, and I guess how much were, were sports, involved in your youth that kind of led to where you're at now? Yeah, they were huge. I mean, look, uh, it's uh, it goes beyond the fact that it's obviously the the most uh, bonding element I had with my father. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up really in a in a Nirvana kind of existence on Long Island in Nassau County. Uh, a lot of kids to play with, a lot of games to play every day. We played stickball, we played wiffle ball, we played 
touch football. We played flag football. We played, you know, street hockey. I mean, every day. Um, it was never a, uh, an issue for my mother what I was doing after school because we were playing some kind of sport. And then on the weekends, we'd have the organized sports, basketball and football and baseball. And it was a, it was really a wonderful time and a wonderful place to grow up in. Uh, you know, Long Island is an interesting place because it's generally a, it generally skews Mets, Jets. At the time, the Nets were playing on Long Island and Islanders. And so as a result, that's kind of what, you know, what I fell into, even though my father was a Giants slash Yankees fan. So always a lot smarter than me, my father was. But uh, uh, I, I can blame geography for what, uh, for what I wound up rooting for. But I wound up with four Islanders championships right when I was, you know, 13, 14, and 15. And that, 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 that's the best time, I think, to enjoy it. And I got my one Mets championship when I was 19 and a sophomore in college. So uh, that's not a bad time to do it either because we uh, hopped in the car right after Marty Barris struck out and we made it for the parade the next morning. So, um, but yeah, it, it, sports was, 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 look, it was number one, playing it, following it, obsessing about it, living and dying over it. Um, there's no doubt that uh, where I grew up and how I grew up is, you know, a large portion of, uh, of, of why I became what I became as a sports writer. I mean, Sports was a huge influence. I wasn't good enough. I knew to play beyond varsity basketball uh, and figured out a way to get it to, to do that. I also loved writing and my mother always encouraged me to, to write and English was always a big deal for me. And uh, so I was able to combine the two. I got very lucky. Were you a guy that grew up reading the newspapers, reading the stories the next day to, to see what happened? Or, or was it something that, uh, again, you would go to and kind of see those guys, those sports writers and, and say, one day I want to be those guys? Yeah, I mean, I can honestly remember, you know, you know this is going to sound like I made it up, but I swear it's true. Um, when I was seven years old, 19, summer of 1974, uh, June 29th, 1974, to be precise, my father took me to Old Timers Day at Shea Stadium. And uh, it was just a, a magnificent experience. I mean, the game itself, first baseball game, you fall in love with baseball that day. Anyway, when you're a kid, and sometime during the game, my father pointed to the we had good seats because it was my father's company's uh, uh, you know, seats. I was lucky. He turned around. And he said, that's, what, that's the press box. That's where all the sports writers work. And I said, uh, you know, what, what do sports writers do? My father explained, you know, they basically went and covered baseball games for a living, and that's how they, that's how they paid the rent. And it was like, well, I want to do that. And more specifically, my father worked in the city every day, you know, his entire professional career. And like a lot of other commuters, what that meant was he bought the Daily News going into the city and he bought the Post, which is an afternoon paper, coming home from the city. And so he would always bring the Post home with him. And so he would always throw me the Post, you know, when he walked in the door before dinner. And so I used to just, you know, read that cover to cover, having already read Newsday cover to cover, which is a Long Island paper. And I can remember being seven, eight years old and saying, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a, I want to be a sports columnist for the New York Post. And here I am at 54, and I'm a sports columnist for the New York Post. So, I mean, look, I mean, maybe it's not the same as a kid who's 10 years old saying, I want to be an astronaut. But I think it's, you know, in, in my own little galaxy, it is. And uh, I like telling that story for two reasons. One, because, like, you know, it, it's evidence that, you, that, that your dreams really can come true. I mean, look, I mean, it, that's what happened for me. And, you know, what I then have to quickly tell a lot of, you know, young kid, kids that I advise or counsel is that just because your specific job doesn't come true, uh, the ability to dream can sometimes being able to visualize what you want to be, you know, at, at, at the other side of your career, you know, sometimes does really allow that to happen. Those days or those moments where it seems like it's a grind, you kind of go back to that time and, and you know, think about, OK, this is what I want to do. This is what I told myself I was going to do when I was really young. And do you, you kind of reflect on that at all? 
Always. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. For one thing, Steve Serby, who's a dear friend of mine, was in the papers back when I was eight years old and I was wanted to be a sports writer. So he loves the fact that I tell him that I've wanted to, that I've been reading him since I was eight years old. He loves that part of it. But, uh, uh, but, but yeah, definitely. And, you know, and I think that's really kind of, look, I mean, I, I don't think I'm any different than any other sports writer in New York. I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of us grew up around here, not all of us, but a lot of us did. And those of us who did, I think have an appreciation for what came before and just how important newspapers were, uh, not only just in the, in the media arm of things, but just in terms of, of making New York such a unique sports city. So you grew up at West Hampstead, then you go to Chaminade High School, uh, all boys school, I believe. All boys, 1600 boys. Yeah. So I, you know, basically you spend your entire high school career and then you're being unable to wait to get to college so you can be introduced to girls again. What was it like there? And I know some pretty prominent folks come out of there. Brian Dennehy, uh, actor, passed away here recently. Uh, Bob McKillop, the, the head coach at Davidson College for basketball, men's basketball. Uh, what was it like being around there? And, and did you know about some of those guys that came before you? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a thing. Your first day at Chaminade, you kind of you kind of learn the lineage, and uh, you know they, they 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 encourage you to become part of the lineage. It's a uh, look, it's a, it's a school with a great tradition and a great, an incredible academic reputation, which is the reason why uh, my parents steered me there. Uh, the deal we made was that I would put in a year there and we'd see how it goes. Um, I was obsessed with basketball when I was a kid, and I was actually a pretty good CYO basketball player. I, I desperately wanted to go to St. Agnes, which was, the, which was the local basketball power a couple of towns over in Rockville Center. Uh, but my dad, you know, who, got, who was a musician, and he had played a dance at Chaminade, and you know, you kind of walk the front stairs at Chaminade, you go into the into, right into the gym, and my father said it felt like he was walking the, the escalator up into heaven. He's like, "You're trying this for a year and seeing how it goes," and you know, some of my oldest friends I made at Chaminade, and and, and it was a, it was a great experience because it allowed me to realize a that I wasn't going to be in the NBA playing basketball at some point, and that I had to try for a plan B, and it gave me a great background for plan B. And look, one of the one of the things about going to an all boys school is there's not a lot of distractions and you learn how to get serious about your, about the important stuff about, you know, about learning how to study and learning how to get, uh, you know, grades good enough so you can kind of move on and get to where you want to go. And so I, you know, I'm grateful that I went there. I mean, you know, obviously I think my, my high school experience would have been a lot different at St. Agnes or at West Hempstead high school, but not, uh, not any better, not any, you know, worse, just different, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I had the experience that I had. Did you do some sports writing while you were there? I did. I worked for Tarmac, which was the uh, which was the uh, the school newspaper. Uh, Tarmac, uh, our, our nickname were fly were the Flyers. So that's how Tarmac became the uh, the deal. And you know, one of the great things was I was on the varsity basketball team, not playing a lot, but I was also assigned to cover the varsity basketball team. So one of the great things I learned the uh, <laughs> coach, coach Basil, never let me forget it. I used to give I used to give him a shot every shot, you know every every. Uh, every monthly issue. And he said, that's because I wasn't playing you. I'm like, yeah, of course, of course it was. Should have played me. But, uh, um, you know, it wasn't too, it, it, it wasn't too over the top, but I, I, I probably was a little harsher on those teams than a guy who wasn't on the team and not playing probably would have been. <laughs> yeah. You got a, the nice inside view there. Well, from Chaminade, you went to uh, St. Bonaventure. Um, and, and I know it seems like you, you really flourished as a, a sports writer there. What was that like for you? What was that experience like to uh, work for, I guess, a student newspaper there and also the, the newspaper in town? Well, you know, it's, it's a wonderful contrast, I think, to, to, to what you went through at Syracuse, Mike, because it's a, it's a tiny school. Look, I mean, it's, 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 a, 
you know, when I, when I went to school, I think there were 2,100 undergrads. There were probably 150, 175 people in the, in, in the mass communication program. So uh, the thing you realize because of the math, the opportunities are limitless. And, you know, as opposed to having to wait until say your sophomore, junior year, before you get a prominent spot in the newspaper or the radio station, I mean, within a couple of weeks, I had a shift on the radio station and I was covering the men's soccer team and then the men's swimming team and then the basketball team. And then I was a sports editor and then I was the editor. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was a like, I mean, I feel sorry for people who sometimes wonder if they made the right college choices. And look, I've, I've gone to a lot of colleges afterward where, you know, I've wandered the campus at UCLA and, you know, University of Texas and LSU where my wife went to school and, and uh, Syracuse, and also, you know, and remember, remember specifically walking there on the campus at, Ch- at Chapel Hill the first time I was there, I said to myself, people actually go to school here and remembering what it was like under the snowy layers of uh, St. Bonaventure. But even with all that, I mean, I, I know I made the right choice. It was the right uh, dynamic for me. It was the right size for me. And because it was so small and because I was very ambitious, I was able to get my hands on a lot of things and do a lot of things between ages 18 and 22 that allowed me, I think, to hit the ground running when I got out of school. And it was also just a fun experience. Now, look, I mean, the, the basketball team is a, pretty, is, is, is a pretty great part of the experience going to school there now. It was a huge part of the experience there, but it, was, it, it wasn't very good. In fact, I was there at the very beginning of a, probably a 15 or 20-year downfall uh, when we wondered if they would ever be good again, uh, which has made, you know, you know, you know, all these years later for me, you know, the one – the one thing about being a sports writer in the city, where in the town where you grew up, is that it's really hard to be a fan of the teams you, that you rooted for. And so, really, I have one rooting interest since it's St. Bonaventure basketball. And thankfully, uh, you know, it's not a bad rooting interest these days. It's hard, I think, once you get into this business to learn how to be a fan. Like you said, the, the teams that you cover, you probably can't be a Mets fan anymore. Maybe you are deep down inside, but St. Bonaventure, I guess, is, is a sport or a team that, that you don't necessarily cover right now. Right. And it allows you to understand, look, I mean, I think sometimes when you cover sports, you can become a little bit immune to how much it means to people, you know, and it's not, they just don't want the information you have. They just want, they don't necessarily just want to hear your opinion. I mean, they care about this stuff very, you know, very much so. And I know as a fan, look, I mean, it it sounds absurd to somebody who's not a sports fan that you lose sleep over a game. I mean, my wife is not a sports fan, believe it or not, even though she's lived with me for close to 30 years now, she's not a sports fan doesn't understand sports, doesn't, doesn't get it. You know, she, she went to LSU. So last year, Bonaventure played LSU in the NCAA tournament, which, you know, in some households would have been, you know, Armageddon. And she pretended for about a week. And then, you know, after a while, she's like, you know, I just want the bodies to win because you'll be impossible to live with. I don't care if LSU wins or not. But it's impossible to talk to tell somebody like that, that it's actually a legitimate thing that when your team is on a losing streak, that when your team loses a tough game in 12 innings, when your team loses in double overtime, you can't sleep that night because you replay the game. And yes, logically you say, well, they don't care about what happened to you and why is it such a big part of your life? But it is. And thank God for guys like you and me that it is because that's why we have jobs. Um, but it's important, I think, to retain that. I think if you don't have a rooting interest as a sports writer or as a sports broadcaster or somebody involved in sports media, you really lose an element of understanding what your readership, your listenership, your audience uh, cares about. And to me, the fact is that, you know, no, I don't, I don't live and die over Mets games anymore. And when the Jets play terrible, I write about them and I make, you know, some bad jokes and I, I file my column and I don't think about it again until I have to write about them again. But I understand the people who are reading those stories and reading those columns 
uh, feel the way fans feel. And I know how fans feel because I do have an emotional investment in at least one team, the St. Bonaventure basketball team, uh, where, you know, when they lose a tough game to St. Joe's or, you know, when they when they, when, when they beat a certain team in, uh, in central New York, as they did a couple of years ago for the first time in decades, uh, you wind up feeling like you're the king of the world. And, and uh, it's, again, inexplicable and illogical, but, you know, God bless the fact that we have those feelings. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I claim to be a Syracuse basketball fan these days. Football, so, nah, maybe not so much. Uh, they're struggling a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's great to have fans, people that are passionate out there to make what we do that, that much better. Uh, your time at St. Bonaventure, Woj was, was a, a guy that you know and, and, and met, and uh, you guys have a pretty special bond. Yeah, Adrian is one of my uh, dearest friends in life. I mean, he was two years behind me. Uh, in school. Uh, I remember him kind of stalking me in the first weekend, his freshman year. We lived on the same floor, but he couldn't find me. And he finally found me uh, um, and, and, and you know, wanted to know when the first newspaper meeting was. And I said, there's signs all around campus, dude. Just look. Uh, but uh, that, that the, it, it, was the, uh, it was the beginning of an incredible friendship that uh, has, has been, we've, we've been friends since 1987. And I'm godfather to his son, his son, Ben, is the pride and joy of my life and uh, my friendship with Adrian and his wife, Amy, who I also knew from Bonaventure is, you know, one of the most important things in my life. Um, and I was there for the creation of the first Woj bomb. Um, you know, as, as a guy who was two years older than him, uh, I had been this, I was actually the editor of the paper when he showed up. So, you know, from that standpoint, I suppose he would tell you that I was either his first boss, his first mentor, or the first guy that real that he realized he was smarter than. Um, but, uh, Two years later, I, you know, when, when I was a senior, I want, you know, knowing what I wanted to do with, with my life, I became the, 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 the beat writer of the, uh, of the basketball team, which, you know, is, you know, the smart, a pretty smart thing. If you have the opportunity to take that, you know, and I'd been the editor of the paper so I could do what I wanted to do, I did that. And that, it so happened that the, that the, uh, the basketball coach was fired that, uh, that, uh, uh, that year. And, uh, uh, we knew he was going to get fired, but we wanted, we wanted to break the story, but we were a weekly newspaper and we came with a paper that came out on Friday. Our deadline was Wednesday into Thursday, late night. And so it was, it was going to be very hard for us to break that story. And Woj and I were, were everywhere on campus trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And, and, and essentially around the same time, we both got from different sources that the coach was indeed getting fired. And so, but this was like on Wednesday. And so we knew that the local paper at the very least was going to have to pay the story the next day. And the irony is that the the, the, the beat writer at the, the local paper is one of my dearest friends to this day, but you know it's you know business is business, and we didn't want the we didn't want the radio station. Long story short, we had this information, so we, the two of us cooked up a plan where we called all three Buffalo radio stations, and we said, look, we have this information. If you if you credit the Bonaventure newspaper, you can have it. And one of the one of the channels, I think Channel Two, said, okay. And so, you know, 1120, leading the news that night, the Bonaventure student newspaper is reporting, boom. And look, that was Woj's idea. Um, he, he said that, 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 that was the first Woj bomb. I got a chance to write the story in the paper. I did that because I was a senior and I basically bigfooted him. And I was the guy who was going to you know, have to go looking for a job in a couple of weeks. So uh, he's never let me forget that either. But uh, um, later on, Woj also was, was the guy who broke the story who, who, who the, the replacement coach was going to be. So he was at it when, from the time he was 19, 20 years old. And he was the same guy, driven, smart, you know, knew who to call, knew what to do. Um, and it's been, a, you, know, you know, from my standpoint, having a front row seat to see what's become of, of that career has been, has been really enjoyable. And, you know, we've had a lot of fun. We spent a lot of time, actually, 
Uh, he was the uh, sports columnist of the Bergen Record around the same time that I was a sports columnist of the Newark Star-Ledger. And uh, so we actually went head to head for a couple of years. That was a lot of fun too. Um, but our friendship endured. And obviously it was actually during that time that uh, I became godson, or I became godfather to Ben. So. That's, that's great. That's being creative in a time without social media, right? To try to get that news out there yeah. and, and kind of beat everybody to the punch. Yeah, it would have been easier now. Just you know, one of us would have been probably would have been Woj would have gone to his Twitter account and said, uh, you know, you know, the bottom venture, or you know, in those days he put put Woj is reporting uh, that the uh, that that, that uh, Ron DeCarly is getting fired. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it, it was a different time, but uh, not quite not not quite that easy back in those days. Well, from there, you, you stay in the area. You worked for the uh, Olean Times Herald, and that's kind of where you got your start out of school. What was that like for you? Well, it was interesting because it was staying it was staying two extra years in a place where I went to college. And sometimes you got to be a little bit careful about that because you don't want to be misinterpreted as the guy who's like on the six year plan. So I tried to stay as you know as, to spend as little time as I could in the campus bars. But uh, um, that was a wonderful training ground. Look for uh, and, and look, not just for the for the four months a year when I covered the bottom edge of basketball team is awful, and they they really had disintegrated to a terrible place in their history by then. But I chronicled every moment of that, so I think I, you know, in, in a certain way now that I'm a fan, I can appreciate the good times even more. Um, but you know what? You know, you know, eight months of the year, what you're doing is you're doing high school rewrite games, you know, on a, on a Tuesday or a Friday, and you have you know a hundred soccer and volleyball games that you need to uh, to get in the paper and get accurate. And look, I mean, one of the things that I know that I've done in, in the rest of my career is I write well and I write accurately on deadline. And I think it all started there. And from there, then you go to Arkansas. So you, you kind of move away. Is this the first time or the furthest you, you moved away from uh, the area? I spent a little time in Kansas City later on also, but Arkansas was a little bit different, a little bit different culture. Um, you know, I figured it, I was still, I was 24 years old and it was an opportunity to cover the SEC and to cover Nolan Richardson specifically. He had some great uh, Arkansas teams, uh, being put together back in those days. And, and, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to take it, to take a job. I knew I wouldn't take later on in my life. I, I went there knowing I would only do it for a couple of years and, and, and hoping I would parlay that into something, not knowing what I want to parlaying into more than I bargained for because I met my wife there. Um, but it was, it, it was a fun, it was a fun job. The problem was the job itself was sports editor, and I wasn't cut out to be sports editor. I was, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I always knew I wanted to be a columnist. I didn't want to be a guy laying out the pages. I didn't want to be a guy hiring and firing people. I wasn't, I wasn't good at that part of the job. And so that's part of the reason why uh, it only lasted about a year and a half, uh, maybe close to two years there. Um, and, it was, and it was for the best because I realized, you know, once and for all that what I was was a writer, for better or worse. Um, but my time there was a lot of fun. It was you know, in, in a lot of ways, I was given essentially, you know, four extra years of college without having to go to school. The two years I spent in Olean, the two years I spent in Fayetteville, both great college towns um, and, you know, an opportunity to, to cover college sports. Uh, and in the case of Arkansas, big time college sports, I got a, I got a real sense of what uh, that aspect of, 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 of sports was like. Intimidating at all? You're still pretty young covering those sports at a high level, or did you kind of lean back and go back to your St. Bonaventure days to, to really help you get through, you know, and really fit in at a time like that. I was too dumb to know how dumb I was back then. So, I mean, I, I don't want to say I was arrogant. I want to say I was confident and ambitious, although I'm sure some of the people there who I still have, you know, have very warm relationships with would probably tell you that their first impression of me was, was an arrogant Yankee coming down and, you know, telling them everything they, they didn't know about everything else. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that was part of it. I mean, and look, I mean, it, it didn't end for me well in Arkansas. I got fired there and it was really the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I won't tell you it was a fair firing. I don't think anybody ever believes they were fired on cause. I mean, like I said, wasn't good at the job. I don't think I necessarily deserved to be fired, but being, being fired was the greatest experience I ever endured because it's stayed with me with every, every day of the rest of my life. I mean, I understand, you know, what the flip side of success is in every way. Um, it hit me, it hit me hard. I was out of work for a couple of months, you know, 25 years old, getting fired from the Northwest Arkansas times. Uh, you don't necessarily have a lot of suitors. Um, and I really got kind of lucky that I was able to put my career back on pa- on track, but it also made me value the career. I think more than I did when I was, you know, really young in this business. I just think I always figured it was, I was going to let my, my talent carry me. And I realized that, uh, you know, part of, part of being successful in this business is playing the game, getting along with people getting along with superiors, doing what you're told, uh, much like any other job. And, uh, you know, in my case, it took a hard lesson, but it was a very valuable lesson. Well, I think uh, any of us who worked in the media at some point have lost our job for one reason or another. And uh, like like you said, it kind of gets you back on track. And for you, you you got back to New York after that, I guess. I did, Middletown, New York, which is about an hour north of the city. Um, And it was, you know, that was the job that really rescued my career. It was a it was it was still a time of prosperity among newspapers. So we had a nice staff. Um, we were allowed to look at me. I had, I had my local responsibilities I had to do. But, you know, if I was if you were willing to put in the time, which I was, I was willing to put in 50 and 60 hour weeks. You know, you were able to do a lot of different stuff. So I wound up, you know, basically talking myself onto the Marist College basketball beat. And I want to talk myself onto the Army football, you know, helping out with Army football and you know, being able to do stories like that allowed me, you know, they, they, they ultimately, you know, invented a, a column job for me. So that was really the first full-time column I had. And it was a very, it was, just, it was just an enjoyable place to work at a time when, you know, we still spent money. I mean, look, we're a, a 75,000 circulation paper and we travel with all the New York teams in the playoffs. Uh, you know, if there was a big, you know, we, we, we travel with the Jets and the Giants. We had actual full-time beat writers for that. Um, you know, not long after I left there is when the, is when the uh, financial sky kind of came through and kind of started to cut things. But I mean, it was, it, it was a wonderful training ground. And I, you know, I've been, I've been the product of a lot of good timing and, you know, working in the Middletown Times Herald record probably during its most prosperous time was, uh, was, was, was a real blessing for me because it was, it allowed me, put me in a position to get a lot of other, I think, jobs down the, down the road because I, you know, Especially, and there was no internet yet, and believe it or not, with the, the I think it was the last couple of weeks I was at the paper when they finally had a website. So you know, my bad columns were allowed to die in the darkness. Um, you know, and you know, I still have a few of those in my attic, just to as a reminder that uh, that it always doesn't doesn't always come easy. But um, I was allowed to learn how to do the job and not do it in front of the world. You know, which I think most young writers have to do now. You know, unless they're stuck behind a paywall, you know, and of course they'll be complaining about being behind that paywall. But, you know, if, you're, if your work is exposed to the entirety of the world, you better be pretty good or else you're going to be labeled as a, you know, any, any of the labels they give, they, they, they give out pretty quickly. And that's, that's not, uh, I think, the most encouraging way to go ahead in your career. I was, I was spared that. You mentioned you're working long hours there. Are you, are you married at this point? You said you, you met your wife in Arkansas. Are you married at this point? And, and, and how do you balance all that? Yeah, got, we, we actually got married in uh, right in the middle of, of my time in Middletown. She actually worked at the paper there also, which, you know, was was, was probably for the best. And, and look, I mean, 
you know, I don't know what this says about me, but, you know, literally from our first date, I explained to her, that, you know, what the, what the deal was. This is what I want to do with my life. And this is how I'm going to get there. And, uh, you know, you know, part of how I, I mean, you know, one of the things she laughs at every one of our anniversaries is one of the first things I told her was, you know, I work a lot. That's a quote. And uh, she never lets me forget that, especially now, because maybe, you know, maybe I don't necessarily work quite, you know, I don't burn the minute at all quite the way I did back then. Um, but uh, it, uh, it, but, but, you know, to, 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 you know, I got lucky because look, I mean, not every, not every spouse would have been as agreeable with that. Um, and our circumstances were such, I mean, look, we never had kids. Um, so, you know, if, if I had a family, I mean, things probably would have been different. Um, but, you know, it was, it, 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 it was the way our lives worked out. You know, I've, I've been extraordinarily fortunate that that aspect of my life has been, you know, a real source of, of joy and light, you know, and it could have been different if I had married somebody else. So you go from Middletown, New York, you go to uh, Kansas City, you spend some time there as well. What uh, what was that like for you? And how'd you get from New York to Kansas City? Well, I was lucky because I had a, a dear friend uh, who I met, you know, believe it or not, in the burgeoning days of the internet, Joe Posnanski. Uh, he and I both uh, contributed to the Scripps Hour News Service. And that's kind of how we met each other was through reading each other's work. And in those days, I mean, it was as simple as, you know, I, did, I, I believe I reached out to him and said, hey, I really like your work. And he's like, hey, I really like yours. And um, we became friends that way. We basically became pen pals. And um, it was, you know, he, 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 was, the, he was at the uh, Cincinnati Post when, when that happened. Got the job at the Kansas City Star as their lead columnist or co-lead columnist along with Jason Whitlock. It was an incredible staff. And uh, they, 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 a job came open for a takeout writer and a third columnist. Um, and he pushed for me. And pushed me to a degree where the sports editor was not – he already had his, his, his eyes on two or three other people. You know, he's like, why am I going to even talk to a guy from Middletown, New York? That's absurd. I can give this job to anybody I want to. And, you know, thanks to Joe, he was able to get that – to convince that sports editor to actually open up the envelope and read my stuff. And that's how I got the job. I mean, it was persistence. But then a little bit of luck. Um, Din Mann was the sports editor. I should probably give him full credit because really being hired in Kansas City changed my life and it changed my career. And Din went on to invent and, and, be, and become the chief honcho of Major League Baseball Advanced Media. He's a brilliant guy. Being around him um, expanded my universe uh, in so many ways. Uh, his deputy, who ultimately became sports editor when Din moved on, was a guy named Mike Fannin, who's now the editor of the Kansas City Star. Uh, he changed my life and that he was the greatest editor I ever worked for, the single greatest line editor I ever worked for. I mean, when you would you know, and I was a guy who, 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 you know, was responsible for a couple of, you know, some 5,000, 6,000 word takeouts in addition to whatever columns I would write. And this is a guy who would take apart every sentence and make it better. Um, I feel sorry for younger writers who don't have that kind of hands-on editing early in their career. I was, you know, just turning 30. And, you know, it's like when I, when I, when I look at my stuff, when I went to Kansas City and I look at my stuff after it, it was the most profound experience because it became significantly better. I just understood. I think I had a lot of raw materials to work with when I got to Kansas City. I had some talent, certainly had the work ethic. I certainly had the ambition and the want to. And kind of going through the, the meat grinder in Kansas City, coming out the other side, is what I am now. Um, and I owe, I owe Din Man and I owe Mike Fan and I owe, you know, being able to work alongside guys like Joe Posnanski and, and, uh, and, and, uh, Jason Whitlock and Blair 
Blair Kirkhoff and some of the guys, Bob Dutton, some of the guys I worked with in Kansas City, um, that all they all allowed that to happen. It was a it was it was a great laboratory for learning. It really was, um, and I'm not sure how many of those things are available to younger writers now. Do you use yourself as a resource like that for younger writers? Do, do they try to. to you? Yeah, I try to. I mean, you know, I, I've been fortunate. I've been mentored. Uh, Jerry Eisenberg was a guy I worked with in, in, in Newark, and he was a guy who took me under his wing. Dave Anderson, a longtime columnist at the, at the New York Times, took me under his wing. Um, a lot of people have gone out of their way to help me and to give their advice. Harvey Arrington, Ian O'Connor, Mark Kriegel, I can go on and on. Uh, the generosity that I was afforded at various times in my career uh, almost is humbling, and I've made certain to pay that forward. Um, I don't know that I've been able to be as successful in terms of helping others as they were from as the others were for me, but I've tried. I've tried to offer guidance. Sometimes offering guidance now isn't the same as it was 20 years ago because sometimes you have to be kind of almost a cautionary tale and explain what they're getting into, um, and that can't always be easy. Um, but it's uh, it's it's a. Uh, it, 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 I've, I've been extraordinarily lucky. I really have been. Yeah, it's been an incredible life, and and all that to lead you back home, in a sense, to the the New York Post. You've been there uh, such a long time. How did you come back to there? And, and is again, you said as a seven year old that that was your goal, and to finally see that realized, what what did that mean to you? Well, it meant everything. I mean, I, I probably applied there fifteen times, <laughs> starting as a junior in college, wanting to get an internship there. And what's funny is that the guy who wound up hiring me, Greg Gallo. He was there for a number of years, and he, uh, um, when he retired, he, he, he sent me a, a present, which was an unopened envelope. It was something that I had sent him probably 10 years earlier. I'm like, this isn't open. It's not even unsealed. He's like, I have about seven others if you'd like, like that. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I'm not, I'm, he's like, but you should make you feel better. I didn't hire you because your work wasn't any good. It's because I never actually read it. I'm like, okay, I guess I do feel better about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that I wanted to ultimately try and work in one of the New York papers. Um, and the Post was always, I just had a special affinity for the Post because it was a paper, it was my father's paper. And, you know, when the opening occurred in 2002, um, you know, I, I, I didn't even apply for it, amazingly not, because I just, you know, at that level, that job is a job that gets recruited for. And I just happened to get lucky. A couple, of, a couple of people at the paper were looking out for me. Joel Sherman specifically recommended me. Um, and, you know, the, the, through, 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 through a, a process of about two months, I wound up getting the job. And, uh, you know, I realized once I got the job, I said, this is the job I've always wanted. I'm not going to screw this up. You know, this is, you know, it's like that moment in Wall Street when Bud Fox says life is, comes, comes down to a few moments. But one of my moments was getting hired at the Post. And, uh, you know, luckily here I am 19 years later. And, uh you know, it's been everything. You know, 19 years for you going on 20 at the post. You know, what's what sustained you this long? What has uh, kept you going during this time? And, and you know, do you have, you know, the biggest memory of the biggest sport maybe that you've covered during that time that you look back at? Well, I think the thing is that I, I still like it. I still I mean, I still I literally look forward to waking up every day because I know I have a chance to write something that day. Um and I know that not everybody is, you know, maintains that enthusiasm over a long period of time. Uh, look, I mean, I still like sports. I think that's part of it. I think too many guys who do this for too many years 
you know, you talk to them in press boxes and they hate everything about sports. They hate the games. They hate how long they take. They hate the players. They hate talking to people. They hate traveling. I still love all of that. In fact, I mean, you know, I, 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 God knows I miss traveling because we haven't done a lot of it in the last year and a half. Uh, hopefully we can, we, can, we can get back to getting on airplanes soon. Um, at, least, at least I, you know, I've only done that once or twice in the last year and a half. Um, but I still love all of it. I really do. And I love the job. And, uh, you know, I love working with my, with my colleagues. I, I really do love everything about the job. Um, and, and I think that's part of it. I think that's what, you know, you ask what sustains you. That definitely is what uh, gets you out of bed every day. It's definitely what makes you, um, you know, want to, you know, stay fresh and relevant. Um, you know, in, in my case, look, I mean, there are a lot of guys 20 years in the job. I think they could do a lot of their stuff uh, off the top of their head. And look, I mean, you, you write 250 columns a year. Some of that is going to have to, the way it is because of deadlines and so forth, especially in, in a time of COVID. Uh, but I still, you know, I, I still enjoy talking to people. I still enjoy the reporting aspect of it. I still enjoy finding stuff out that I didn't know five minutes ago and then, you know, passing it along uh, in the form of a column. You know, I, I still enjoy informed opinion as opposed to, you know, crazy wild hate take, hot take opinion. Um, and so that's really what, you know, what it is for me. I mean, I, I, I just enjoy it. Um, I'm lucky to have found a job I like. My father slogged, you know, into the city for 30 years at a job he hated every day. And the one thing he always wanted to impress upon me, he said, find a job you like, because trust me, you know, if you get one you don't like, uh, you know, it, it feels like it takes twice as long to get to retirement. And, uh, you know, my father was retirement age when he was my age. I can't even imagine, you know, wanting to go to Florida and go by a pool anytime soon because I still want to get in the, be in the game. It's a lot of fun. It really is. And uh, especially find the post. We, we, you know, we, we tend to, t to take ourselves that seriously. We tend to try and go for a laugh once in a while, which is, which is a nice thing. And, and, you know, sometimes that laugh, laugh comes from somebody else's experience. And so maybe it's not the most, you know, glaring example of Christian fellowship, but it's, uh, it's still a fun way to make a living. And, and you speak about being at the games. Are you at the games these days? Have you been at any live events recently? Um, well, I was, yeah, I was, I mean, I've, 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 you know, I've, I've, I've had a, uh, a little bit of a, uh, of a health issue the last couple of weeks. So I've been away, but, but yeah, I went back to the baseball games and, and, you know, if, you know, um, I, I did almost, I probably did 25 Knicks games last spring and I did their, their, their entire, the entirety of their playoff run. And that was a blast. It was a blast to get back to that. Uh, you know, to be back at the garden, to be back at a place that cares so much, but just be back in the middle of it. You know I mean? I, I, I despise covering games by zoom. I really do. And now look, I mean, it's easy. I mean, God knows how easy it is, but we don't want easy. I mean, who wants easy? I mean, easy. You want easy, you know. You play, you play a board game with your, you know, with, with your wife. I mean, uh, it's it's not it's it, it, should, it shouldn't be easy. It should be hard. It should be challenging. You should be challenging yourself three or four times a week when you're writing a column, and that's, you know, I sometimes feel like I'm like I'm almost cheating the game when I'm in a Zoom room because it's just it's it's too easy. Um, so I mean, I, and and not nearly as enjoyable. As, as being able to kind of build your own column, build your own work day. And so I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be back up to speed, not, you know, in a week or two, and I'll be ready to, 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 get, to get to the ballpark, you know, very soon. Let's stay in very soon. Well, along the, the time that you've been at the, the New York Post, obviously the Yankees are always a big story there, but uh, Derek Jeter, a huge story. And I know you're a Hall of Fame voter as well, and you voted him uh, in and, he was just inducted here recently. What's what's your take on, on Jeter? Do you have a, a Derek Jeter moment or a Derek Jeter story that that just resonates with you? 
just that every day he was accountable. And I mean, you know, I, when, when, when you try to explain to younger athletes, I think, you know, what we want as, as, as media members, it's, it's what Jerry Jeter was every day of his career, even before he was captain. And even after he was, you know, one of the dominant players in the sport, he was at his locker every day. He made sure he got what you needed. He wasn't going to tell you a lot. You weren't going to get a lot of insight there. But I mean, he was going to, he was going to, he was going to fill your notebook with something and, you know, and then you move on. And, you know, he understood that from an early age. Um, I don't think we ask for a lot. Look, I mean, I, I get it. It can be difficult. We do, we, we do our share of ripping. We do our share of criticizing. And sometimes it's not so easy to want to talk to us after we've, you know, traded you or fired you. I get that. But it's also part of, like, I mean, you know, one of my favorite guys to, to, to have dealt with was Terry Collins, who I learned a lot of baseball from and who I fired probably five different times in various ways and became a running joke between the two of us. And that tells you what a pro he was. He realized it wasn't personal. He realized that I wasn't going after Terry Collins' job to make him unemployed. He realized I was a sports columnist at the New York Post, and as such, you know, it was my job to critique his job as the manager of the Mets. And, you know, whether I was right or wrong, you know, my opinion was he shouldn't have a job any longer. It was a worthwhile opinion. And, you know, there, there were guys like that who were fewer and farther between because, you know, too often now, if you rip a guy, he takes it very personally. Uh, I don't think Jeter ever read any of it, so he couldn't take any of it personally. But even if he had, he would have understood it. And also he would have probably laughed and said, all right, all right, so maybe I should be trading the Reds. I get this, but I'm not. And I'm Derek Jeter. I'm going to Hall of Fame. I'm going to get, you know, all but one vote. I doing <laughs> and I think that uh, you know I think more athletes should have that attitude um, and I think that their dealings with the press for, you know forget whether it, it be prosperous it would just be easy I mean just you know if you, if you put the five minutes in to be professional and accountable um, your, your, your time with the press will be a lot easier and a lot uh, a lot less of a burden no brainer, obviously, that Derek Jeter's a Hall of Famer, and uh, you said there was one person that did not vote for him, but you, you're not that guy. You, you want to put it out That's on record? Not you're not that guy. I, I, I make my ballot public, so people know I was. I, I definitely put my check mark next to Derek. Uh, I'll tell you why. As, as somebody who's voted for the Hall of Fame for close to twenty over over twenty years, I do wish that they would require voters to make their ballots public. I just, I, I wish they would. Um, I, I think that would, you know. Like, I don't know why somebody wouldn't vote for Derek Jeter if it wasn't to, to have a look at me or be able to write a column saying, hey, guess, guess what, I didn't vote for Derek Jeter. But, you know, what do I know? I mean, I, I just uh, I just think that, uh, you know, if you have to answer for your votes, even just, you know, without answering for it, just so people know who you are, I think it makes the voting a little bit, a little bit more accountable. And I'm big on accountability, and I think that that would be a big deal. But um, I don't think we're ever going to get there. No class for 2021, as Derek Jeter was 2020. You did vote, though, and I, I got down your votes here. And, and obviously some ones that, that maybe surprised some people, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens uh, among those, and they're debated every year. Why, in your mind, are, are those two guys uh, uh, among those that you voted to, to be in the Hall of Fame? My opinion on this is changes every year. I mean, I spent a couple of years where I didn't vote for them. Um, and a couple of, in the last seven or eight I have, and I will next year on their last uh, time on the ballot. Um, I, 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 I use two arguments. And here's the thing. I mean, the thing, for better or worse, about the Hall of Fame vote is it's entirely subjective. You are judge, jury, executioner, however you feel. 
however logical, illogical it may be. Okay. Um, I do vote for them because to me, I mean, this is an argument I use. We all have an idea of when they both started using uh, illicit drugs. And had they instead retired that day, they would have done enough to be Hall of Famers. But I also think that both those guys are, are so overwhelmingly dominant in their era that to keep them out of the Hall of Fame is to make the Hall of Fame dishonest. And look, I mean, in the same way that I think Pete Rose deserves to be in the Hall of Fame with a, <clears throat> a statement on his plaque, he was suspended from baseball for 35 years because he gambled on the game. That should be on his plaque. I think this should be on their plaque. And I think that to deny the fact that there was a steroid era in baseball uh, in, the, in, in the Hall of Fame, which is a historical place, I think is, is dishonest. I really do. Now, I also don't think that these two were, were, were products of steroids. There are guys that I can cite, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero, a few other guys who I didn't never voted for because I believe they were entirely products of performance-enhancing drugs and wouldn't have come anywhere close to the ballot had they not taken them. Now, I may be wrong, but that's my prerogative to vote that way. I think those two guys were great before drugs, after drugs. And who knows really how many. And, and, and there's also a slippery slope. If one thing, Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame, and he was the commissioner when those guys were, were doing what they were doing. Hold on, Mike. Mike, I think you're covering up your microphone or something. It's, it's scratching or something. Sorry, is that better? Yeah, if you just want to talk about Bud Selig there. You know, one of the real slippery slopes is that Bud Selig, the commissioner, is in the Hall of Fame. You know, and he was a guy who oversaw this era. But also, um, th- there was no steroid policy for, for when, 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 when Bonds and Clemens were in baseball. I mean, they were illegal, so you can make that argument, sir. But there was no steroid policy. They weren't violating baseball policy. So, I mean, look, I mean, you can make a, a hundred different arguments. I, I, think, I think they belong. Uh, and I think that there are others who, who, who did take drugs who, who don't belong. It's going to be really interesting. I, I'm not quite sure how I, how I feel about David Ortiz, for instance, um, who I think is obviously a Hall of Famer, uh, who obviously was you know, part of a, 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 a test that wasn't supposed to become public, but what, it did become public. So we know about it. That's going to be an interesting vote. Um, I'm not even sure how I feel about someone like Alex Rodriguez, who, I, again, is a guy I think was good enough to be a Hall of Famer, probably was, was you know, a Hall of Famer without the drugs, but, you know, was caught several times and used after that, it, after it was, uh, became illegal, which is the reason, which, which is the difference I made with Manny Ramirez, too. I mean, he became, he got suspended a couple of times, even after knowing what the consequences were. There's no one standard for making this vote, I guess is my point. You know, in the same way we all, I think, struggle with our with our consciousness over, over Kurt Schilling in a different way. I mean, you know, I vote for Kurt Schilling. I don't necessarily like a lot of the stuff that comes out of his mouth, but I don't think it has anything to do with whether he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, I, I judge, for, I vote for him based entirely on what his baseball resume was. And, you know, not everybody does that. And that's their prerogative to do it that way. Yeah, again, Bonds, Clemens, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Scott Rowland, Kurt Schilling, Gary Sheffield, Billy Wagner were all the ones that you voted for for the uh, this past year. Again, the first time since 1960 that nobody was uh, elected to the Hall of Fame. A- a- as you look at the game now, who do you see out there that's that's hands down first ballot Hall of Famer? And th- does anybody out there you know strike you maybe as someone who will get uh, unanimous votes? 
Um, I think Mike Trout's got a shot. I mean, his career has been literally impeccable except for injuries, and nobody's ever held injuries against a Hall of Famer. Um, I think he's certainly got a chance to be unanimous because he's that good. I mean, clearly Albert Pujols is going to be a Hall of Famer. I don't think he'll be unanimous. I think the last five or six years has damaged whatever case he was going to make for being a unanimous Hall of Famer. But I do certainly think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, you know, what I find interesting are the guys who are early in their careers, guys like, you know, Fernando Tatis or Vlad Guerrero. I mean, clearly you can't say they're Hall of Famers yet. They've got, you know, two and three years under their belts. And, you know, I go back to when I was a kid. It's funny when you go back and you look at old all-star games, you know, from the mid-70s, and you see, like, Fred Lynn is referred to on the broadcast as future Hall of Famer Fred Lynn, future Hall of Famer Dave Parker, future Hall of Famer Steve Garvey. There are a lot of guys like that in those days, and they never even came close to going in the Hall of Fame. It tells you what you have to do to be a Hall of Famer, which is to not only be great, but to be great for a long period of time. It's hard to do, which is why I think you can appreciate more and more uh, what it is to have a career like Mariano Rivera had or a career like uh, Greg Maddox had or a career like Chipper Jones had or a career like Derek Jeter had. As a sports writer, you kind of made a transition to uh, a, a writer of a books, uh, and, and you have several books out there, all baseball books. Uh, what can you tell us about those and why did baseball, why was that the subject you gravitated to when it came to, to writing your first books? Well, I think baseball is, is, is definitely a literary uh, sport. I mean, it, it, it lends itself to good writing, lends itself to good reporting, um, and it's historical. And as much as anything, those books are historical. And you know, my favorite of the three books I wrote, I wrote a book about 1941 and how important it was to, to be a sports fan in, those, in that year because all around you, the world was going to hell. Uh, you know, obviously climax in this country by December 7th. But every day, and you know, you know, you know, part of what I did as part of the research for that book was I read the New York Times cover to cover every day from that, from that, from that year. And it really, you know, even, even reading the stories you know, decades later, it was terrifying to see what it was, to think about what it was like to live in that time. Um, and you contrast that with the four great sports events of that year. In baseball, you had DeMaggio's hitting streak. You had Ted Williams hitting four or six. Uh, in uh, horse racing, which was a huge sport in 1941, World Away became the most beloved Triple Crown winner in history. And in boxing, uh, one of the most one of the greatest boxing matches of all time between Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn. Billy Kahn was the light heavyweight champion. Joe Lewis was a beloved uh, heavyweight champion. And they had just an incredible fight at the polo grounds in June that year. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was being able to retell those stories. It was being able to, 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 to get to know Billy Kahn's children. Uh, it was the ability to kind of try to kind of recreate a horrifying time and how terrifying it must have been to be alive in those days, knowing that as normal as your life might seem today, next week you might be, you know, sent away to a, to an army camp, and who knows what was going to happen the rest of you know, the next couple of years. Um, that was the most satisfying book. I had the most fun doing that book. Um, but I also, like, I mean, I, I just it was it, it was a, it was a way to do something completely different from my regular job. You know, my regular job, I spit out 725 words every day. You know, when you write a book and you sit down to do a session of book writing, sometimes you're writing as many as two and 3,000 words in a day. Uh, it was a wonderful contrast. And, look, I just really fell in love with the subject matter. It's part of the reason why I haven't written one in a while, because I had such a positive, I had such a positive experience with the three books. 
and the three subjects that, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I really want to be able to wrap my, you know, wrap my fingers around another subject the way I did with those three subjects. Yeah. Your last book, 2009, the first fall classic about the 1912 world series. That'd be interesting as far as the, the research for something like that. A lot of newspapers. Look, I mean, there were 15 newspapers in New York in 1912. There were nine in Boston. Um, I spent a whole week at the Library of Congress reading newspapers from across the country. Uh, like there weren't a lot of there weren't any there wasn't anybody alive from the 1912 World Series by the time I started my work. So I knew I wasn't going to be doing any 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 uh, primary research in terms of talking to people who had been through it. So I had to kind of recreate the entire the entirety of the time. And it was a glorious time for baseball. It was a glorious time for newspapers. And almost everybody who participated in that series had a first-person column that ran for 5,000 words every day during the World Series. So uh, you were able to really kind of be able to put, put it together, kind of like a forensic scientist almost, put back together what it was like that time and also that World Series. And it was a great World Series. I mean, first of all, classic. I mean, something it can be misleading. It wasn't obviously the first World Series. That was 1903, but 1912 was, was the first game, was the first World Series that went the distance. It actually went beyond the distance because there was a tie. So there actually was a game eight. And uh, without giving too much away, uh, game eight was was a classic, uh, you know, do or die, winner take all game. The first one in World Series history and uh, uh, telling that story was just very satisfying. With all the storytelling, with all your work, you've won over uh, 50 awards. Uh, writing awards. I often say you're the, certainly the more famous Mike Vaccaro of the two of us, uh, to say the least. But, uh, you know, is that satisfaction? What, what does that tell you about what you're doing to, to get an award like that? Look, I think, I think one of the things that, that, that's true about all the fest of the media, Mike, you probably agree with me, is that we're the most self-congratulatory profession there is. That said, and look, I, I think anybody who gets an award always says, ah, you know what, it's not as important as the work every day. No one I know has ever given one of those awards back, and I certainly haven't given any of them back. I hang them on the wall in my office. I, you know, I don't, I don't obscure them. I'm proud of them, <clears throat> and I think what they do is they just, you know, they justify the work you put in. Um, and look, I mean, you know, one of the great things to me, a lot of these contests, is that I know a lot of the people against whom that I'm competing. And you know, even when I don't win an award, just being a finalist for an award, I mean, to me is is an incredible honor uh, because it says that you're that you're worthy to you know, your work is worthy of the other work in this category. And to be recognized is, is wonderful. Like, I mean, I like to say, and it probably sounds a little cynical and jaded that my real, you know, journalism awards come on the first and 15th every month when I cash my paycheck. But um, look, it goes beyond that. We're not in this just for the money. And, and, and clearly, if, you know, if, if, if money was our driving factor, both you and I would probably have done other things uh, with our lives. And I wouldn't do anything else with my life. Uh, I know I enjoy what I do. I, I know you enjoy what you do. Um, I mean, you know, the, the job is taking you to wonderful places like courtside at the Riley Center. <laughs> watch a bottom entry Wilmington game, even though the wrong team won that day. Um, but, and I'm talking serious. I mean, this job has taken me to Australia. It's taken me to China. It's taken me to Greece. It's taken me places that I never would have ever been able to go. I've covered, you know, 15 Super Bowls and 10 Final Fours and 20 World Series and I wouldn't have done that. I just wouldn't have. You know, I've, I've been fortunate, and I know that the job has taken you places that you never thought you would ever be, and that's what it is. I mean, that's it, it, it's a life experience that is unmatched, and, you know, I, I hope for the health of our businesses going forward because I want other guys to experience what I've been able to experience, not just the travel, 
but the satisfaction of doing the work, the satisfaction of on deadline, writing about the Giants, your hometown football team, winning a Super Bowl against an undefeated team. You know, writing on deadline, the Mets going into Dodger Stadium and winning game five of a playoff series. Writing on deadline, going to an Olympic event. You know, I, mean, I always tell people the greatest sporting event I ever saw was a badminton match in Sydney, Australia, that I just happened to wander into. Uh, and it was just the most extraordinary two hours of, you know, 5,000 Malaysians screaming at 5,000 Koreans and uh, the, the Malaysian team winning on the last shot of the match. Most amazing thing I ever saw. Um, that's a joy. That's a gift. And that's really, you know, that's what I wanted when I, when, when I pursued this. And, you know, I just feel so gratified that I've been able to do this all these years later and have the experiences that I've had, gone the places I've gone and written the columns I've been allowed to write. Yeah, certainly it's a, it's a passion. It's a, it's something that we love to do, as you said, and uh, you go to places you, you never mm-hmm. thought you've been to. Uh, like I said, or like you said, uh, you know, St. Bonaventure, I was there with the UNCW uh, calling the game that, that went the way of the Seahawks. And, and one thing, as you and I kind of connected, when I was on that trip, and a big award for you is you said there's a sandwich named after you back there at St. Bonaventure. Tell me about that. Well, Angie's is a, is a local hangout that uh, that uh, um, is he's a huge biometric basketball gathering spot. Uh, Angie's a guy that I know going back to when I was covering working in Olean, in New York. So it's uh, uh, it's not a permanent part of the menu, but it's a uh, it's the occasional you know whatever he wants to bring back the Italian sub, he brings back the Vicaro sub, and that's you know of course got a lot of salami and a lot of provolone, and you know you know you can go on and on. Uh, but, uh, but it was an honor. It was an honor. The first, the first time he sent me a menu with my name on it, I, I had that framed and I still have that somewhere in my, in my office. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, not the healthiest, uh, lunchtime fare, but, uh, I wouldn't want any other way. I wouldn't want a tofu sandwich named after me. That would, you're talking about dishonest. That would be dishonest. Yeah. Not much Italian food is healthy, but it's good for you. I mean, it's, it's, it's it tastes good. So, uh, Absolutely. So that's, uh, that's a great honor. Alive. It makes you feel alive. As my grandmother said. There you go. There you go. Well, wrapping things up, how can people follow you? How can they uh, see more about what you're doing and your work? Well, I, I, on Twitter, uh, my, my Twitter handle is Mike Vac. That's a capital M, capital V with two C's. Um, and uh, like my, my work's available on the Post website every day. You know, we're still one of the few, few that doesn't have a paywall, though we've just begun a Post Plus site, which has some really cool extra stuff. So if you want to check that out, we have a free trial. It's interesting stuff. But my columns are still available for free. And uh, you can you can check those out at nypost.com slash sports. And that includes what, Vax Wax. What are, what are Vax Wax? That's my Sunday column. And the grand tradition going back to Jimmy Cannon, who was a New York Post columnist in the 40s and 50s and one of the great uh, uh, bylines of all time. And he was the guy who, speaking of uh, Joe Lewis once, said he was a credit to his race, the human race. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a tribute to actually uh, having that chair in the paper now uh, Sunday is a day where I, I answer some 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 reader mail. I also have five or six, you know, you know, just thoughts off the top of my head. Some of them sports related, some of them not. And it's, I call it my talk radio column because it's generally a column that I, I just go off the top of my head. That's the one a week that I do go off the top of my head because whatever's on my mind, whether I rank, you know, the top ten shortstops in New York history or the ten worst uh, Mets losses that I've ever seen in person or stuff like that. It's a it, 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 it's a it's a fun column. Uh, but the vax wax element of it is uh, the four or five kind of, you know, kind of bullet points uh, every week that I have, which uh, we'll talk about, uh, you know, 
anything that comes into my mind, whether it's a random Springsteen thought or whether it's a random TV show thought or whether it's something about how terrible the Yankees are playing. Well, that's great stuff, and uh, stuff we'll certainly uh, look forward to keeping an eye on and, and reading throughout the year as well. Uh, Mike Picaro, the other Mike Picaro, as you said there uh, from the New York Post, thanks for spending some time with us in the front row here and uh, being our very first guest and kicking this thing off. I am TOMV forever. The other Mike Picaro is fine, and, and I'm proud to. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun to spend some time with you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well, again, my thanks to Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post for joining us today. Our very first guest, episode number one of it, In the Front Row. And a special thanks to Dave Gorin with the, uh, the executive director of the National Sports Media Association will help get me connected with Mike Vaccaro for that as well. And also for J.R. Quitman, our creator of the show, the producer, director as well. We hope you enjoyed it. If you do, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll have more coming up soon. And again, some more editions of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.